Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm here today with my regular co-host, Jay Carson. Jay, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. How are you? I am okay. Um, Now, the big news, of course, this week is the government shutdown, which commenced at midnight on Friday, January 19th, when the latest stopgap continuing resolution funding government operations ran out. Now, the House did approve yet another CR, but it couldn't get past the Democratic filibuster in the Senate. Now, Democrats are hardly fans of government shutdowns in most circumstances, but here, They believe that forcing one now gives them maximum leverage to negotiate a deal on DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. And we've talked about that a lot, of course, in in the past. Now, Democrats, I think, are betting that since Republicans hold a majority in both chambers of Congress, as well as the presidency, the public will ultimately blame Republicans for the shutdown. And, you know, according to uh, a recent Washington Post uh, ABC News poll, they might actually be right. The poll respondents said by a 20 point margin, I think it was 48 to 28 percent, that they'd blame a shutdown on President Trump and the Republicans as opposed to the Democrats. Now, my take on this is Republicans, on the other hand, seem to be betting that the public will end up seeing things their way. And it's pretty clear to me that they've painted the Democrats' action here as favoring illegal immigrants over Americans. Uh, and they put a particular focus on the military, first responders, also. In, uh, in the House version, trying to push for that six-year extension for the children's health insurance program, they're making the argument that, well, Democrats are favoring Ill- people in this country illegally over the children. So th- th- that's my take, Jay. Uh, what do you make of all this? Why don't they care about the children? No, I, I think um, you're absolutely right. I-, I-, I would say as a political strategic matter, uh, Republicans almost always lose in in these kind of shutdown situations um, for a variety of reasons. I, I mean, a lot of it I, I would attribute to the, the media, just the nature of the story, um, the, the, the the photogenic nature of the uh, the disappointed kids who are going to the field trip uh, at the Smithsonian or, or whatever, and there's the police tape up blocking them. I mean, that's that sort of lends itself to the uh, you know, the narrative that uh, it's Republicans are mean and they just want to keep people from from uh, getting all the good stuff that government uh, would otherwise be giving you. Um, so, uh, you know, that said, I, I think um, and, you know, you and I had talked about this a number of times. And I, again, if I were advising the Republic Republicans uh, as far as strategy, as far as uh, do you want to go into a shutdown or not, um, I would say you ought to avoid it at all costs. But but at this point, I'm I'm not sure that um, what else they they could have done to avoid the shutdown? Um, you know, it, it, it I I think there there is very much a Democrat argument that uh, they would like to keep the uh, issue of immigration alive uh, for the uh, midterm elections. Um, this is this is not dissimilar to if you recall back in uh, I want to say um, uh, 2006. There was essentially a a DACA deal in principle that uh, President Bush would have signed uh, that would have had enough Republican support. Um, but uh, Senator uh, Barack Obama, uh, you know, pushed on on kicking that and and, and scuttling the deal uh, in order to to keep that issue alive. So, again, in this case, uh, from most reports, the the DACA piece of, of immigration reform 
uh, is where there is some agreement. There's there's disagreement maybe on the the details, uh, but there's a general sense of of Republicans under the the, the uh, Graham proposal um, uh, that that was kicked around uh, like a couple weeks ago um, would do that. But but the broader immigration, uh, uh, the lottery system, um, and uh, uh, the uh, those those countries that some of the lottery system folks come from. Um, those those issues uh, are, are seem to be the bigger holdup to an immigration deal, um, you know. And then likewise, the I think if you look at uh, the Trump um, uh, timetable, and I and look, it's sort of a matter of principle. Saying um, we gave Congress to March fourth uh, to come up with a um, DACA solution, uh, and the Democrats are are jumping on this to sort of you know force that through a little bit. Uh, I, I know you often make the argument of, of uh, things that need to move slower and more deliberation and so forth. And uh, I don't know that one month makes a difference here, but I think the Republicans have that argument that, uh, look, we're willing to talk about immigration. Uh, just, uh, you know, we're not going to shut down the government over it. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, one, your comment, you've made this comment in the past, and, and I think you're right, that the public tends to blame Republicans for government shutdowns. And it seems to me that this, in a way, makes sense. Now, I, I'm not going to, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on on the blame game. I think that that's ultimately kind of a somewhat fruitless thing. But in terms of perception, it makes sense to me. I mean, there's there's obviously that Republican argument that the mainstream media is, is incredibly biased against us. Putting that aside, I, I don't want to get into that argument, if that's okay. But sure. The other argument- It'll, it'll be there next week. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> the other argument, I think, is that Republicans for really for a generation now, if not longer, have you know made themselves kind of squarely on the side of we are the we are the party of less government, less government involvement. And so when I mean there's there's not much less than the government entirely shutting down. I'm not saying that that makes sense to kind of associate those two things, but when the the message coming from the Republican Party is less government, less government, less government, and then there's a government shutdown, I think it's understandable that the American public that generally speaking doesn't pay a ton of attention to politics would say, well, it's, it makes sense that it'd be the party that wants less of this. Well, now they got none of it. So it's obviously their fault. So that's kind of my thought on that. No, I I think that makes perfect sense. And, and, and look, as a Republican, I think a lot of Republicans, if you would ask them, um, um, you know, my goodness, what about this uh, government shutdown? Most, most would say, yeah. Um, you know, there's there's sometimes a a Republican sense, and this this use we saw back uh, with the sequester um, is is that uh, there is very much a sense of the Republican Party of look if if the government has to trim down or uh, we have the non-essential workers uh, off for a while, eh, well, you know, country will get by, and and historically it it has. Something else I think is a little more interesting though, and in, in this one is that. Um, uh, Republicans control the presidency, uh, or the, the executive branch. Let's say that's probably the better way to that's the better way to put it. I think. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, I definitely want to. I think that's a that's something we really should get into uh, in in a little more detail. But before we do, I just want to take just a minute to thank our first and only sponsor for today, SeatGeek. You know, buying tickets to sporting events and concerts or concerts or either can be complicated and confusing, but it does not have to be that way. SeatGeek, it's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type 
of live event. And that's whether you're searching for a, you know, a last minute deal or trying to plan a night out, or you just need to get a really nice gift for someone. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, and it's fully guaranteed. I've used the SeatGeek app, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. You can be anywhere in just a few taps, boom, instantly find seats. You know, I just use SeatGeek, in fact, to find out that Survivor is coming to town in a few weeks. You remember Survivor, right, Jay? I do. I have the the Tiger. Exactly. So, and you know, best of all, Politics Guys listeners, you all get $20 $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Okay, so you know, back to the, the president's role in all this. Now, there are times, Jay, believe it or not, when I agree with Donald Trump. Uh, and I, I like to highlight that. Um, you know, uh, Back in 2013, he called into Fox and Friends. As we know, Fox and Friends is a show that is near and dear to the president's heart and said, I quote, problems start from the top and they have to get solved from the top. And the president's the leader and he's got to get everyone in a room and he's got to lead. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't like doing that. That's not his strength. And he's talking about President Obama, obviously. And that's why you have this horrible situation going on in Washington. It's a very, very bad thing, and it's very embarrassing worldwide. Oh, absolutely, very, very Donald Trump. And, 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 you know, here, here's the thing. The president is pretty clearly, in my view, not leading on this. You know, Chuck Schumer made the comment that uh, negotiating with him is like negotiating with Jell-O. And, you know, we've talked about this before on the show, that he seems to be, he seems to agree with everyone, if you can get him in a one-on-one because he doesn't really know his own mind on this, it doesn't seem. And he's torn between the desperate need to want to be seen as the great deal maker and make people like him and be happy and all that. And also with that countervailing need to kind of satisfy his base. And you have, you know, immigration hardliners like uh, uh, like uh, Tom Cotton and, and Stephen Miller kind of pulling him back. And more often than not, I think, they end up being the last person he talks to. And so he'll go into these meetings with Schumer or other folks and they come out of it saying, oh, yeah, it seems like we've got an outline here. And then, you know, Miller or Cotton or someone drags him back. And, and you know, Donald Trump's right. Having a strong, effective leader who knows his own mind, can get people in a room and work something out. That would be great. But we don't have that here. Yeah, I think there's there's something uh, to that. And, you know, Years ago, uh, again, this is back in our college days, um, I read a book called uh, The Art of the Deal, um, and it was all about, you know, his, his negotiating strategy. And and to some extent, I, I look at this and what he's doing now and say, maybe it, it's not so dissimilar. I mean, it's it's one of these, you know, maximize the, um, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of... Um, you know the 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 confusion sort of keep the guy uh, the other guy off off his uh, off his game a little bit and oh, you well sort done of, then he's keeping everyone confused yeah, you, so yeah, well, you exactly know. no and I, I think I mean maybe he thinks this is just how how this works now it, it may have um, and and I you know in my my real life job engage in a lot of negotiations and I, I've dealt with people like this where you sit down and you say okay here are our issues one two three four okay we're good on one two three and four great. Uh, and then, okay, let's, let's drop the final documents. And then, uh, they come up with issue five. Um, this, I mean, oh, one more thing. We also want this. Um, and, and the idea is that, that it's 
you're more likely to take that uh, after you've agreed to everything else. Uh, you don't want to throw away a deal uh, that, that uh, is, you know, for one more thing. Um, so I think it could be some of him, him doing this. I, you know, I don't know. I'm not in the room. Uh, I think there's a lot also that, yeah, he may not know his, his own mind uh, on this. Uh, certainly not have commanded the details. Um, but what I meant when I said it, it's different having uh, Trump in term in the uh, or Republicans controlling the executive branch uh, is is the the harm and I will you know I'm I'm doing air quotes if you can't see this uh, that's caused by a shutdown. Um, you know the executive has the power to sort of minimize that or exacerbate that. And uh, in the the 2013 shutdown. Uh, we saw that, if you recall, there was a, a memo that sort of <laughs> instructed uh, executive uh, agencies to sort of exacerbate the inconvenience uh, uh, to people. Um, uh, President Obama, or the I, again, I shouldn't say President Obama, the Department of Interior uh, went so far as to put up barricades at the parking lot of uh, Mount Vernon, uh, which is not a national park, which is not uh, federally owned, which is entirely private. Um, you know, and, and again, just just to uh, again, sort of maximize the inconvenience and say, oh my gosh, this is horrible, horrible uh, that uh, all these places are being shut down. So you're not going to have that incentive uh, from from the executive branch here uh, to kind of, you know, look, make let's let's try to make the airport the uh, airport lines longer. Uh, let's it's it's going to be, you know, and, and a lot of this can be managed. Um, and when we talk about, we should also make clear when we talk about a government shutdown for those of, of, uh, of our younger listeners who haven't been through these before, um, it's not a complete government shutdown. Uh, it's, it's not even really a partial shut, government shutdown for the most part. Uh, you, you have many agencies continue to operate. Uh, the mail still goes. The Social Security checks still go out. Uh, the, uh, the military is still on patrol. Um you know, it's it's a it's a, an agency is then sort of um, uh, there's a lot of times some some leftover funds of how long you can fund it without other authorization. Um, you know, so this isn't uh, it makes for it makes for a good dramatic uh, press coverage uh, when you say government shutdown. But uh, it, it's it's less of a shutdown than, than one yeah. might think. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. You know, um. And of course, it could be the it could very well be the case that by the time uh, some listeners uh, hear this show, that the government shutdown will be over. I don't expect it to last uh, too terrifically long. I mean, I can't imagine it lasting more than more than a week. That'll be my bold prediction. And I think sometime this coming week, it'll be settled with another short-term continuing resolution. And then, you know, one thing we haven't even talked about, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, in the weeks to come, are sort of the underlying budget issues in, involved in differences between Republicans and Democrats. So that's something that I am sure we'll be talking about. That, and, right. and, and this is, I, ironically, again, this, this shutdown isn't really even over the budget, which, you know, would be the typical, um, you know, the longest government shutdown uh, was the uh, 1996 uh, one, I believe, which was about 26 days. Uh, and I think the, the, um, 2013 one was something in the order of uh, 16 days, 15 days. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I agree. I think we're going to see a continuing re resolution uh, sooner rather than later. I don't think it goes that long. Um, I'd say maybe a week. Uh, and, and again, because it's tough to do a weekly uh, minute by minute <laughs> podcast, you know, it may even be uh, moot by the time you're listening to this, but 
All right, well, let's, let's move on. There's been other news this week, you know, but with all the focus on the government shutdown, what is, I think, would have been a normally big story didn't get as much coverage as it usually does. And that's the annual March for Life, which took place on Friday with, well, anywhere between 50 and 100,000 people coming to the National Mall in Washington, D.C., depending on whose estimate you believe. To support, it's again, good they got there before they closed everything. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, in, in either in support of, depending on how you see the issue, greater restrictions on women's reproductive rights or action to end a massive national tragedy that's been going on for forty-five years now. And the formerly pro-choice President Trump, uh, back when he was just citizen Donald Trump, addressed the crowd through a live video feed. The first time a president's done that, and he, of course, pledged his support for their cause, but. The president did a lot more than give marchers rhetorical support. On Friday, the Trump administration announced it was rescinding guidance to states given under the Obama administration that made it more difficult for states to end Medicaid funding to Planned Parenthood, which is, you know, a major source of reproductive health services. Now, Texas has already and abortions. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, an abortion provider. That, yeah. That's part of our reproductive health service. Absolutely. And Texas has already requested uh, uh, permission to bland to to ban, to ban Planned Parenthood from its Medicaid program. The administration hasn't approved that yet, but there's a good chance it will. And that's expected to lead to a number of other states making similar requests. Now, I should also mention that the House of Representatives also moved to support the pro-life movement this week by passing something called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which sounds horrific. And it's, of course, intended to sound horrific. Uh, it would prohibit healthcare providers from refusing to give proper care to babies that survive an attempted abortion. Now, this is really not a problem in the real world, but it's a kind of scary sort of sounding thing. Um, and this comes in the wake of something called the, uh, another bill that the House passed called the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. Again, horrific sounding title, right? And this would prohibit abortions after 20 weeks and that's a point at which the bill's proponents claim that a fetus can feel pain, though this is disputed by a lot of people who actually work in this area and do research in this area. But anyway, whether, whether or not- Fetuses are unavailable for well, comment. Whether or not these bills you know, make you say, yes, we should do this, or just make you just go, oh God, this is awful. It's highly unlikely that you know, either your hopes or your fears are going to be realized because neither of them stands much of a chance uh, in the Senate. Jay, I wanted to get your thoughts on the march, on President Trump's remarks, and and maybe you know what his administration and the Republican Congress, particularly the House, have been trying to do in this area. Well, I think um, you know the 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 march. I I respect a lot. I mean, I, I gosh, I hate to keep using the, the I word, I, but um, abortion is is such a complicated issue uh, in terms of there's a moral aspect, there's a constitutional aspect. Uh, there is a a, a state uh, 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 authority aspect um, that that people I think come to it with with a lot of different 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 reasons. Um, so I, look, I, I think the the plain and simple answer is uh, Roe versus Wade is not going to be overruled anytime soon. Uh, the the basic landscape is not going to change. Uh, the bills you just mentioned are types of things that would, uh, um, you know, sort of sort of chip away, and, and I think it's it's make it make it tough for the other side to defend 
their their position. I mean, I think the, the right to life folks, and quite rightly, what they try to do is is force the other side into the most extreme argument. Um, uh, and you know, for example, would would you you know if if an abortion fails, uh, uh, is you know should should uh, you know you, you finish uh, finish the job? That's a really extreme argument, but the the pro-choice extremists will will make it and, and will will fall into it, which I think will help you know public. So th- this is this is a jockeying for position. I agree. I don't think anything really happens, um, uh, either legislatively or change the law. Now, as far as the um, uh, Medicaid and uh, uh, Planned Parenthood, I think that's a that's a really uh, good uh, pro-life argument to make, and it's it's uh, in my view really defensible. Um, we've had for years the, and I'm forgetting the, oh, the Hyde Amendment, um, which has been attached to most funding legislation that says uh, there's no taxpayer funding for abortions. Uh, and and you and I get have gotten into this a bunch of times uh, about whether, well, uh, Planned Parenthood provides a lot of other services besides abortions, um, uh, but, uh, you know, and well, these funds go to those services and not the abortions, but of course money is fungible, fungible. Um, and there's, there's no way to really, to really, uh, keep that, uh, in, in that, in its own, uh, um, you know, yeah, it's allocation. Own so, area. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think that's, that's a, an idea and, and look, I've, I've been for years. I mean, if my, the general default position is let's let the States decide this. And, uh, if, if folks in a very, in a certain state, uh, don't want Medicaid dollars uh, flowing to Planned Parenthood or some other organization. Now, again, there's also uh, something like this uh, happened in Ohio, where uh, there were you know a number of other organizations that do provide women's health services that do not include abortion, uh, where Medicaid uh, money was was uh, redirected. I mean, so that's that's uh, to me the argument. Um, Planned Parenthood always insists that uh, what, uh, you know, abortion providing is a very small portion of what they do. Um, That may be the case, uh, yet there's always howls uh, every time there's any kind of discussion of uh, removing or or, uh, diminishing funding. You know, I'm sort of torn on this because one thing, you know, I I think it's in a way kind of, I don't know if we're disingenuous exactly, but to say that, yes, this person has a right to to this to decide what they want to do a woman has a right to, uh, to decide what she wants to do with her body up to the point of you know uh viability but we're going to make sure that we do everything to make that right simply a theoretical right and make it as difficult as possible for this for this woman to exercise this right i i have a i have a big problem with that and it's pretty clear that's what a lot of conservative states are doing um but well, I, I would i would look at it this way though i mean i think even if you go back to like the bill clinton Discussion. I mean, the Bill Clinton uh, safe, legal, and rare uh, formulation. I mean that that is always the rare kind of gives away the game, and and that that is regardless of where you're coming from, from on this, there is a sense of of moral ambiguity. Um, of look, is this really is this really right? And I think it's it's entirely appropriate for uh, someone to say, look, I, I recognize your right to have an abortion, but uh, I don't I don't think the taxpayers ought to pay for it. But, but but I think that's that's part of the issue, right? The other part is putting restrictions on clinics to make it almost impossible for them to operate. If with when claiming this is for 
medically relevant reasons when medical professionals say, no, this actually isn't a medically relevant thing. And so in a sense, they're trying to make abortions rare by making it more difficult for women who are unfortunately in this position to get them as opposed to changing culture and changing things so that people will just choose to abort pregnancies less. And that's in a very different sort of thing. But yeah. well, well, that what I mean, what you're talking about, though, goes to uh, and there, there was the Texas Supreme Court case or the Supreme Court case came out of Texas uh, about a year or so ago that that um, dealt with that, that it was more access. Uh, it, w- it would have been uh, essentially licensing clinics and it would have required them to provide all these other services and, and meet all these other requirements. Um, I mean, I think that's a different question than the Medicaid funding. Yeah, no, no, and I, I would agree with you. That is a that is a restriction on access as opposed to a, uh, hey, this is the government's going to pay for it. No, I think that's a fair point. You know, like I said, I've, I'm torn on this issue because I, not being obviously not being a woman and not being in a position where this had ever or would ever be an issue for me, and that's not to be all kind of identity politics asking this, but I think that matters. But but on the other hand. I do think people tend to talk past each other on this issue, and and I try I've tried really hard to understand the pro life view on this. And you know, for instance, you know, Donald Trump was correct when he said that the United States is only one of seven countries that allows elective abortions after 20 weeks. And the Washington Post actually fact checked this and said we didn't think this was right, but it turns out it is. And you know, the other <laughs> con- well, yeah, exactly. Well, that's that was kind of the tenor of the article. They I mean, included that in the, yeah. in the fact check. The other countries, it's a weird mix: North Korea, China, Vietnam, Canada, the Netherlands, and Singapore. So I go figure. But you know, more kind of broadly, in, in 2014, this is last year. We have uh, uh, government statistics on this. There are uh, around 652,000 abortions performed, uh, and and you know, the the pro life movement. I understand that they look at this as this is essentially a murder, right? And you compare that 652,000, uh, uh, 419,000 Americans were killed in World War II. Just to give you kind of a comparison. Now, the the rate of the number of abortions has actually been declining since the late 80s, early 90s, when it kind of peaked at around. Uh, 1.3 million or so per year. But, you know, since 1970, when government statistics started to, you know, be gathered on this, uh, the total number is right around 44.4 million. And, you know, if you if you start from that fundamental premise that in the vast majority of these cases, or even if even if minorities cases where it's an elective thing and not about a health and that kind of thing, this, I can totally understand how you can see this as just being the greatest moral crusade and important thing to do that there is in this country. And I don't agree with that first principle in most cases, but I'm certainly sympathetic to it. And and I know that no one's going to be argued out of that view, which is why this is just such a, just a heart wrenching issue for me. And I just wanted to throw that in there because I think, I think that's important because more than almost any other issue, I feel like people don't understand these sort of first principles of the other side. And it's important to, even if it's not going to change your view, to maybe have a little sympathy for that other view, which is not to say you adopt that view necessarily. Well, and the other first principle to, to keep in mind, there's sort of, there's sort of two, two tracks. And if, even if you took, um, and this is going to sound, sound cold, but it, it, all the morality out of the equation uh, and looked at this as a purely constitutional 
uh, question. I think there is still an extremely good argument that Roe versus Wade uh, and its progeny were, were wrongly decided. They are, they are essentially the, uh, what in the, the law they call the Lochnerization, uh, sort of creating new rights uh, where ones did not uh, exist before, finding rights in the Constitution that, that simply aren't there. Uh, now, at this point, having lived through so many generations of, of, of Roe versus Wade, that's it's sort of uh, there's sort of a precedential um, uh, influence that it's, it's going to carry and an expecta- expectation, uh, and that makes it more difficult to, to overturn. But but I think there's there's a a solid and has been for you know for a long time uh, uh, argument uh, that look this is just not a right that's that's found in the Constitution and and wh- whether uh, states want to address it however they 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 ought to that's a, a question that uh, can and should be decided by states and through their appropriate legislative processes yeah and, and you and I would disagree on this issue I believe uh, it is a fundamental right of of women to decide what they want, the choices they want to make with their body and their pregnancy prior to fetal viability. But but uh, I know that what we could do, I'm sure we could do a whole show on that. That would be something. Right. Well, I mean, and again, that's to some extent, uh, I'm saying there's the argument. Um, what what you just stated is is the law. Yeah, know? exactly. So, so I've, got, yeah. I've got that going for me. Right. Absolutely. All right. All right. Before we move on to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. Uh, first is Anne writes, uh, thank you so much for all the time and effort you put into your podcast and newsletter, and thanks for adding PayPal back in as a way to contribute. Our pleasure. Thank you, Ann. Um, next, we have Kelly, our newest monthly sustaining supporter through, uh, actually through PayPal. And Kelly writes, I've been a listener for a few years, but finally stepped up to pay the piper. I live in Austin now, but I am a native Clevelander from Chagrin Falls. Uh, most of my family, yeah, most of my family has moved to Texas, so I don't get back north often. But I love hearing bits about what's going on in the North Coast. And honestly, Mike, your Cleveland accent is icing on the cake. All the best to you three. <laughs> and, you know, my, my first response was I didn't even realize that I had an accent. And so I, I emailed Kelly back and said, what do you mean my Cleveland accent? Which even if I had one, I would have figured so many years away would have, you know, washed it away. And he explained this to me. He not only explained it to me, but he sent me an article uh, and all about explain to me why I actually have something called the Inland North Accent, which the article calls the language of the Rust Belt. And and uh, also I have something apparently called the Northern Cities Vowel Shift. So I learned something new about myself. Go figure. I'm sure you've got it too, Jay. No, I, I think, no, I don't know. I think you have it more than I do. Again, really? I, I Isn't grew that up weird? closer to the Pennsylvania border. So I've got a little bit more of the there's a little bit of the Pittsburghese accent hmm. uh, in what, how I grew up too. But no, I, I definitely, yeah, I, 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 I agree. The, the Cleveland accent is, is music to my ears. Yeah, so. I, I guess, I guess I must've loved it so much that uh, I decided to, I decided to hold on to it in some way. It reminds me of an old, uh, an old professor we had at BW who, who kept his Boston accent for, uh, even though he hadn't, he hadn't lived there yes. in a long time. He held on to that sucker like a point of pride and good for him. Uh, all right. Uh, next, we have not one, not two, but three new sustaining supporters through Patreon. Uh, and they oh, are, yeah, you. they're Fern, Dakota, and Amanda. So thank, thank, thanks to all of you. And, you know, with our move to an ad-free format that's going to be coming in uh, early February, uh, I've said it before, your support is more important than ever. And so if you'd like to join Ann, Kelly, Fern, Dakota, Amanda, and all of our other great Politics Guy supporters, you can do that by going to politicsguys.com and clicking on either 
the Patreon or PayPal links. We really would appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. Moving on. Well, there's been more news on gerrymandering this week, Jay. Um, on Thursday, the Supreme Court said that North Carolina does not have to redraw its congressional district map by January 29th, as was previously ordered by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals earlier this month. Now, this ruling means that the 2018 elections for North Carolina's 13 U.S. House districts will almost certainly be based on their current map. And that's a map which resulted in 10 of the 13 seats in North Carolina going to Republicans in 2016, even though Republican candidates only received 53% of all House votes cast in that state. Also, the Supreme Court has ordered the redrawing of congressional districts for race-based reasons in multiple occasions in the past, but it has never ruled that a district must be withdrawn due to partisan advantage caused by redistricting. Uh, but the court does have two cases on its docket that will, I would guess, pretty certainly decide this question one way or another. One is from Wisconsin, which involves Republican partisan gerrymandering. And there's another one from Maryland, where Republicans are the one claiming that the Democrats are engaging or engaged in impermissible partisan advantage gerrymandering. Sneaky Democrats, yeah, yes. So it's a bipartisan thing, is my point. So, <laughs> Jay, I wanted to get your take first on the, uh, the decision that the Supreme Court made to uh, essentially overrule the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals on this. What's, what's your thought on that? I think that's that's the right decision. Uh, again, it was a uh, I want to say seven to two uh, decision. Uh, there were no there were no real opinions written. Uh, there were objections from uh, Sotomayor and uh, I want to say uh, Justice Kagan. I think it was Ginsburg. Yeah, I think you're right. No, you're right. It was Sotomayor and Ginsburg. Um, so look, I, I think this is this is good sort of judicial policy saying, hey. Uh, we've got these other cases that will definitively decide the issue before us. Uh, we're not going to uh, hastily order a, a really pretty significant change, uh, especially on short order, um, uh, until we, we hear those cases. So I, I think that's that's good. I, I think that, you know, you and I have kicked this around bef before. I mean, my concern is... Um, this this is exactly what uh, I talked about uh, a minute ago with sort of the Lochnerizations, um, uh, where where a new right is is discovered that has never previously existed, and in fact I think there's a good argument to say that it's almost the contrary to the right that uh, districts there is an assumption that there will be some partisanship in drawing them um, because of the way that they're they are drawn by elected officials, and you can say that's good or bad, uh, but you can also say that's the the more democratic route uh, because if you if you don't like uh, uh, the districts, you have the option to uh, eliminate uh, or or uh, elect different officials. Now that will vary from state to state, and uh, different states do it different ways. And different states also have different uh, ways in order to uh, uh, to change how the redistricting goes. if If they're concerned that there is a a political um, uh, bias, uh, there are ways that uh, you can you can steps you can take to try to eliminate that. Now, I don't I think you totally eliminate that anyway. You create a commission, but then somebody's got to appoint the commissioners and so forth. So at base, it's always going to come back to a a uh, political decision and that to the, the victor belongs the spoils. Um, well, I, I uh, agree. So, yeah, I, I agree in, in, in a sense. And I understand, I understand and, and appreciate that argument. And I think you're right that sometimes 
when, you know, for instance, the Fourth Circuit basically gave North Carolina uh, like a couple of weeks, essentially, yeah. to make this big change. And while I, I, I would hope that uh, uh, North Carolina's district, I think it should be ruled unconstitutional, I, I don't necessarily think that pushing it forward that quickly is the right way to go for the reasons you cited. Now, uh, you mentioned kind of a more sort of theoretical constitutional argument. The other side of that argument, of course, is that while most things should, in fact, be left up to democratic institutions to deal with, things that shouldn't be left up to that are fundamental rights in the Constitution. And the, the, the argument from a lot of people on the left, including me, is that there's an equal protection uh, issue here, a 14th Amendment issue, and that, therefore, this is not the kind of thing that we can just wait for the, the process to hopefully work itself out in. And that's, that's the other argument, and that's the argument that I think should prevail here. I don't know if it will, but well, I think I, it should. No, I, yeah, I, um, I'll go out on a limb and say that, say that it, it won't. I, uh, I agree and, with just you. Based yeah. on, just, just, just based on the, um, well, I mean, one make up the court, but uh, again, there's never been, there, there is no precedent for the idea that you are, uh, have a fundamental right to um, have, have your your political party sort of favored or or even given even even ground. Um, uh, again, I, I spoke about I've, I've thrown the term Lochnerization. Uh, Mike, you're familiar with this, but maybe our, our listeners might not be. It, it comes from a oh, I want to say 1922 or something case of a guy named Joe Lochner who was a baker who sued New York. Uh, New York had put in a uh, wage and hour law. Uh, that, that said you can only work so many hours. Uh, Mr. Lochner said, no, I think, I think I've got a right to the contract uh, to, to work as long as I want. Um, and uh, the court found in Lochner's favor uh, in that case, saying, oh, yeah, you've got a <clears throat> constitution provides you a right to contract. Uh, now, subsequent courts then uh, sort, of, sort of overturned that. Uh, and and said no, come on, this was just making something up. There's no there's no definitive right to contract. There, there's a, a another contract clause in the constitution. But that's something different. So anyway, but that's that's my point. Is is this this would be something of finding a new right where uh, one had never been previously uh, found. Yeah, and that that gets into a fundamental difference in constitutional interpretation, and that's uh, you know a pretty fundamental difference between between you and me and you you know this goes back to the abortion issue we were talking about you know there is you can search as long as you want in the constitution and you'll find nothing about uh, uh, abortion there is no right to abortion specifically in the constitution but you know people would say well then how can you rule that prohibiting them is unconstitutional it's because it derives from other ex expressly stated rights in the constitution and so that that gets it into another emanates in the penumbra you know is, and yeah you could yeah certainly place. people have right rightly i think made fun of some of the language in that decision which i think was a horribly written decision penumbra. Uh, yeah penumbras but but the point which is, which is latin for the a shadow of a shadow yes but but the point the larger point being is there are rights like for instance the guarantee of equal protection under the law now what does that mean well it depends on who you're talking to, essentially. And that's especially true. The 14th Amendment gets drawn into a lot of these arguments. We, you know, Jay, we could probably do, I think it would be kind of interesting. We could. If we did an entire 14th Amendment show, I, I, that would be, I don't know if any listeners would like it, but I'd be fascinated by that. Maybe we should do yeah. that. I don't know. 
Well, uh, I, I would I would throw out. I mean, I think an equal protection claim is stronger than a substantive due process claim. I agree. Uh, yeah. And again, again, that's again where we can't really get into the weeds here. But but the Roe versus Wade was a substantive due process uh, kind of creation of new rights, as was the, the Lochner situation. Whereas this is is a, a equal protection argument, which is usually uh, finds more favor uh, in in conservative judicial circles, and and I think has a stronger constitutional. Uh, uh, pedigree. Yeah. Well, we will, like I said, the court probably won't be ruling on these cases until I'm guessing end of the term they'll release those. And so it's going to be the summer, but I know that we will definitely we'll take, be on it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, moving on, you know, actually we're, we're running a little, we're running close to out of time. So let's, let's get right into what we're reading. You know, uh, this week, oh, okay. this week I am recommending an article from a site that I bet most listeners haven't heard of, especially listeners on the left. It's a site called Ace of Spades. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Jay. It's kind of um, heard of it, but actually, no, I'm, I'm it's, not, a, it's I'm not this, a reader. It's this weird kind of it's conservative, but they have this sort of I don't know. I almost want to call it like a pirate type mentality. <laughs> and I don't know where that comes from, <laughs> that's, but that's sort of my I'm all about that. vision of it. But anyway, um. It's not someplace I typically spend a lot of time, but every once in a while, I like to check out unusual for me corners of the internet. I think it's important. Um, this week, they posted a really interesting piece on politics and culture. And in it, they argue that Democrats tend to be on the winning side of so many political arguments. Right away, I don't know about that. But anyway, because they essentially control culture. And, and in doing that, they get the more or less to, to uh, decree that certain political positions like, say, being for tight, tighter immigration restrictions or being against same-sex marriage are not just um, politically wrong, but but low class. And, and if you take those positions, it's going to result in all the coolest people basically kind of looking down on you at some sort of a, some sort of a creep. And I thought that was really, I don't know that I agree with everything in that argument, but I thought there were some really interesting points in there uh, about culture and politics, how they sort of interact. And, and I think uh, it's definitely worth a read. Oh, that's on, that's outstanding. Um, I thought maybe like I'm that. just saying that because that, because that buys into my sort of mindset and sort of what I preach all the time. I mean, that, that is politics is downstream from culture. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, um, uh, yeah, so that, that sounds, uh, that sounds great. Yeah. Uh, I also, also want to mention uh, in my in my blog this week, which should be up by the time uh, listeners hear this, uh, a couple of things I, I focused on. Uh, I took my mom to get some medical tests this week, and so that led me to think a lot about medical pricing and transparency and so forth. It was a a saga, as oftentimes these things are. Um, and also, you know, the NFL season is coming to a close. Uh, I gave up watching football this year, sadly. I've been thinking about how much I miss it, why I quit watching it, and how politics could play a big role in making me okay to kind of come back to by far my favorite sport. I've been trying to get into basketball, but it's just not the same for me. And also I get to talk about Teddy Roosevelt, my all time favorite president who some people say actually saved the game of football way back in 1905. So there's that. Yeah. Teddy good. All right. So Jay, what do you have for us? So, all right. So mine, and I had a couple, this is, this is maybe, um, Maybe not as as big picture highbrow uh, as what yours were, was, but this is an essay from the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, last week, last Saturday, um, talking about uh, bad weather is no reason for climate alarm. Uh, and I just thought I'd just kind of throw that out there to kind of uh, 
you know, throw some gasoline on on the fires that we occasionally stoke. Um, but but it makes it makes the point, and and it does so uh, with a lot of studies and numbers that uh, I I'm I'm not a a guy who readily has those in front of them all the time um, because you're you're the data cruncher guy. Uh, I'm more the shoot from the hip. Um, but uh, it's 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 fascinating. Uh, it it cites the um, uh, again NASA and and NOAA and all these folks, and and basically it comes out saying, um, look, if you're making the argument that uh, the wildfires or the uh, now the flooding or uh, the deep freeze or now the uh, big thaw that we have going on uh, here in Cleveland uh, is the fault of global warming, you are uh, you are most likely mistaken, uh, and that the um, it also takes a look at uh, sort of uh, the uh, IPCC um, predictions and how they've borne out. Uh, they have not borne out so well. Um, so it's it sort of it's sort of you know I'm it, to the extent that uh, folks like to say I'm, I'm anti-science. Uh, um, uh, the the average this is based on this is what NASA tells us the average sea rise from 1993 has been about 3.2 millimeters per year uh, with no obvious signs of uh, accelerations uh, within the last 25 years. Um, so anyway, uh, this is just something, food food for thought. Um, uh, it is, it obviously, it's an editorial uh, of people who, uh, who argue against uh, climate alarmism, uh, and, uh, but I think it would be uh, a good, good reading. All right, well, we will make sure we have, we have a link I'll link I to hope that. It's, yeah, I hope it's not behind a paywall. I don't think it is. Yeah, well, it's it's always hard to tell, you know those uh, uh, those uh, those those capitalist barons in in the Wall Street only Journal. Us, there, they us, like to yeah, only the really super rich people get to get to find out about this. Well, but. you know, I I've recommended for a long time to folks the, that uh, that they should really subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. It supports quality quality sure. journalism, just like you know, or even, I, or even the New York Times. I can no, I I I would, you know, this is this is. And we're over time already, but there is something to journalism that you pay for versus what shows up for free in your uh, newsfeed. Yeah, ultimately, you do get what you pay for. And I yeah. think, you know, I've, I've decided personally that the, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times and the Washington Post, for me, they're all worth paying for, especially since digital subscriptions just aren't that much, you know. So and of course, I would say, Jay, the politics guy is worth paying for, right? Even though you don't have to right, throw exactly. that plug in there right at the you end. Sound because better support us, quality yeah. political analysis and journalism. How could how could you and I not be for that? Right. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you like what you heard. And so check out today's sponsor, SeatGeek, where Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code politicsguy. You know, listener support, more important to us now than ever. If you'd like to help us out, go to politicsguys.com. Click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll find there. If you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends, followers, uh, pass along a new show post, tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes definitely helps. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politics guys page there was a pretty interesting argument uh, or discussion we had there this week on government shutdowns i thought that was pretty good um and also we're on twitter at politics guys 
The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.